Okay, well, hello, North Cincy students and friends. We're going to be in Psalm 123 as we continue our series in the Psalms of Ascent, which were Psalms that were written by God's people for their journey as they journeyed from outside Jerusalem to inside Jerusalem for worship and celebrations and feasts. These were songs that they would sing on the road. And these are not just songs for them then, but they're songs for us today as we walk with God on our journeys to the heavenly city uh, known as the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns or when we meet him face to face. So these are important psalms for us and they give us a lot of wisdom. And Psalm 123 is about what do you do in the midst of handling opposition from others when you journey in your earthly sojourn. So let's read together Psalm 123. It's only four verses, and I'll read them now. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, Yahweh, our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Let's pray together. Father, this is a short song. And an interesting song. My heart wonders what would make somebody on their earthly journeys long to sing this song together with your people? What would somebody have to be going through to sing and pray and look to you when they are dealt with unjustly by others and unfairly by others? We don't know. But we know in our own lives we do experience unjust or unjust contempt and scorn and opposition from others for just simply being who we are, for walking with you on our earthly journeys. And Father, we look to you, just as this psalmist does, for mercy, for hope, for blessing, for care on how to navigate life when we have opposition. So Father, help us to look to you, the God who is sovereign over all, not just to be passive lookers, but to be active lookers. So will you give us wisdom on how to live as your people who walk with you? In Jesus' name, amen. So the big question that Psalm 123 asks us is, how do you handle unjust opposition? What do you do? Where do you look? When somebody targets you for the way that you look, the way that you dress, for who you are, where you grew up, how much money your family does or doesn't make, for your faith in Jesus, when somebody has unfair assumptions about you based upon something that you have no control over, when somebody makes unfair assumptions about you because of your faith in your relationship with Jesus and how you seek to live and walk with Jesus, what do you do? How do you, how do you navigate life in that circumstance? How do you handle unjust opposition? 
Some of you may be familiar with somebody named Catherine Switzer. Some of you, of you may not, but you may recognize her picture. She was the first ever Boston Marathon runner uh, who was a female. And there's a famous picture of her uh, being trying to be tackled and taken out of the race by somebody named Jock Simple, who was like the race coordinator at the time, who wouldn't let female run, females run in the Boston Marathon. And it's an old black and white picture that comes up every now and then. A lot of times ESPN does stories on her and what she's doing. And she really has been a, um, a mover and shaker in the world of professional running that has paved the way for so many other women to be a part of marathons and runnings and things like that. And at the time it was believed, and this wasn't that long ago, it wasn't like the 1920s or the 1930s, uh, her first... Um, ever, uh, the first time that she ran the Boston Marathon was actually in 1967. She's still alive today and still does a lot of speaking and she was a, um, a reporter for a number of years and did different things. But it was believed that, that women at the time were psychologically unable to run a marathon, that they couldn't handle the pressures of having to run, so they therefore weren't allowed to run. And um, uh, Catherine Switzer was a runner and she had a coach who named, um, oh, what, what is his name? Arnie Briggs. Arnie Briggs, who was her coach, and she, uh, she, um, she, her coach, she went to her coach and, and insisted on running the marathon, the Boston Marathon. And her coach was, was around 50 years old uh, when, when she asked him that. So he had, was a little old school in his opinions. And he said that uh, if, if you could do that in practice, then I will coach you and let you run and, and, be your, and run with you in the marathon. So she practiced and she was able to run uh, a marathon in practice. So she entered the uh, Boston Marathon. And again, at the time, it was not looked, it was, not, it was frowned upon for women to run. And it was believed that they were psychologically and physically unable and uh, when she applied, there was no mention of gender in the application because it was assumed that only males would apply. So she was able to, to work through the um, application process. And then she showed up in 1967 to run the Boston Marathon, and she began running. And, and somebody came, uh, the, the race director came and tried to steal her bib and her numbers and then take her out of the race. And her boyfriend at the time came and tackled the guy and and kept her from assaulting him, and she was able to go and finish the race. And it was this big story on women's liberation and women's uh, ability to run marathons and do something that they were unable to do because she accomplished her goal. And uh, and after running the marathon, uh, she uh, she was asked about what was it like to be you know confronted and and to be believed that you couldn't do this and trying to be in the middle of the race, taken out of the race. And she said, and she was asked, why didn't you quit? And she said, I knew if I quit, nobody would ever believe that women have the capability to run 26 plus miles. If I quit, everybody would say it was a publicity stunt. If I quit, I would set women's sports back, way back instead of forward. If I quit, I'd never run Boston. If I quit, Jock Simple and all those like him would win. My fear and humiliation turn to anger. And what she was communicating is that her running the Boston Marathon was bigger than just herself. She, her, her reasoning, her vision transcended her own personal glory. 
her reason for running wasn't personal accomplishment or wasn't just the ability for herself to prove that she could do it, but to liberate women, to give women, to move them forward in sports instead of back, like she said. She knew that if she quit, it would be a failure for women and the gender as a whole. So she kept running for them because she had a vision, a hope, a dream, a longing, that a glory that transcended that individual race and her own individual experience of it. And she represented a people group that she was hoping to, to give uh, freedom to and to change. So when I ask you the question, how do you handle unjust opposition? Right? She handled unjust opposition because of her gender and because that's just the way that things were always done. Women didn't run marathons, so therefore she wasn't allowed to, but she, she kept going in the midst of unjust opposition. When you face opposition, unjust opposition, how do you keep going? Culturally, and nowadays, it is believed that you face unjust, unjust opposition by simply believing in yourself. It's... it's Transcendence has been individualized. It's been individualized to own personal glory. And the motivating factors that keep us going in life aren't because we're part of something bigger, a bigger vision, but just for for own selfish gain and glory. We think about our walks with God and when we face opposition because of our faith or because of the working out of our faith in the public realm, we will face opposition. And the thing that keeps us going is not personal success. It is not individual, the individual glory of saying, I did this thing. But it's transcendence. It's the reality that I am walking, that I am moving forward, that I am journeying in this life with a God who transcends my circumstance. I represent a God who is bigger than the right now. I represent a God who is sovereign over all things, who is sovereign over the opposition of man, who is sovereign over the difficulties that I face. And because of that, His love, His care, His concern for me, His instruction for me, allows me to transcend my opposition so that I can keep going and keep walking with Him until I meet Him face to face. In Psalm 123, it's all about looking to the God who transcends our circumstances, who equips us to walk in the midst of our circumstances to the goal that He has for us in the marathon of life where we meet Him face to face in glory. Psalm 1 and 23 answers the question, what do we do when we face opposition? And it gives us the posture of the oppressed and the plea of the oppressed. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, on the posture. What does it look like to posture ourselves when we face opposition? It doesn't tell us to look on our circumstances. It doesn't tell us to dwell on how we're going to get out of the situation that we're in. It doesn't tell us to fight and fire back at the person and, and, to, and to quiet their voice by, by making them feel stupid. But it says, it tells us to look, to lift our eyes upon God. It gives us a posture to position ourselves upon the God who in verse 1 says is enthroned in the heavens. God is the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. His will will come to pass. 
He is the God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. He is enthroned in heaven, and He is the one who has reached out to us, has saved us, has called us sons and daughters in Jesus, for those who have, who have answered His call by faith. That God, intimately, who is above all things, intimately knows us and sees us and cares for us. We lift our eyes up to the God because His eyes are on us. And it says, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hands of the master, and the eyes of the maidservants to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. The psalmist gives us two kind of illustrations, the master and the servant and the mistress and the maidservant. Right? A servant is dependent upon their master, their master's instruction. So if the servant is to do their job, they are not to do it on their own knowledge or on their own will or on their own ability, but they are to look to the instruction of their master to tell them what to do. In the same way, the maidservant and the mistress. The mistress gives instruction to the maidservant to go do this and to do that and have this. So the maidservant is dependent upon the instruction of, her, of the mistress. In the same way, the God follower, the one who is walking with God in life on the journey home to God, looks to God, the master, to give instruction on how we are to walk steadily as we face the opposition that's talked about in verses 3 and 4. And then it has this interesting thing, till he has mercy on us. What does that mean? Well, it means that, there, that, that till he sees us, till he hears us, till he has favor on us, there is, this, there is this assumption that there is a space between the moment from when the, the, the psalmist needs help and from when they find out and answer and hear an answer from God. And oftentimes when we look to God in the midst of our opposition, when we look to God in the midst of our unjust opposition, when the scorners come for us, when those who, who give contempt come for us, there's, there is space, there is waiting, there is time from which we, we, we call out to God and posture ourselves and pray to Him until He instructs us on how we should go. And it doesn't mean that God isn't present in the space, right? It just means that He is doing something in us in the space. It means He is giving us space. And you see this over again, over and over and over again in Scripture. We just did marriage counseling with a couple we talked about how God created Adam and then created Eve. Why did he give space? Why didn't he just create Adam and Eve? Because he wanted to know what it, he wanted Adam to know what it felt like to be alone so that when Eve would come, he would know what it felt like to have a true companion. In the same way, God often gives us space when we cry out to him in the midst of difficulty and hardship. He gives us space so that when he does come, it helps us to appreciate and to, and to, and to trust him even more. I was at the Cincinnati Nature Center every, um, I try to do it every season to go take a day of prayer, and I love to, to walk uh, the trails at the Nature Center and hike, and this, this last Monday, I hiked six miles, which was the most I've ever done there, and it was exhausting, but uh, to hike six miles at the Cincinnati Nature Center, you need a good awareness of the map, because there is no single trail that is just a six-mile trail. You have to go and, and turn this way and follow this trail and that trail, and they're, and they're usually, um, they do a good job of, like, um, of marking the trails so that, you know, like, this color trail leads this way and different things. 
But if I was to just set out on my journey to, to walk and hike six miles without a map, without instruction, I would have never have made it. And I would have wondered the whole time, am I going to make it? Is this going to happen? Will I find my way home? And I would lead a very, very insecure hike of knowing if I'd be able to make it. And in the same way, there, were, there was a lot of opposition on the trail. I saw a deer in the middle of the trail, and it, it had me sit for a little bit. And I was going to wonder, is this, is this deer going to go away? Should I turn back, or should I keep going? There were lots of hills that I wasn't expecting that I was like, I hope this hill stops. Is this going to stop? You know. I faced opposition on the trail. But the thing that kept me going and the thing that was helpful was, was the reality that I had the map in my hand. And that I knew that if I just kept going, that I would eventually reach this, reach this trail marker and I would have this much time left. And if I hit here, I'd be there and I'd go there. I couldn't keep walking without clear instruction on where to walk. And in the same way, when we talk about looking to God, we talk about looking to God's Word. That God has given us an instruction map on how we are to navigate life, how we are to walk in wisdom, how we are to walk with God on our journeys, on our trails. And this isn't something that we just show up to. We, we try to figure it out ourselves. But like the servant looks to the master, like how the maidservant looks to the mistress. We look to God by looking to his word to give us instruction. And that takes humility. That takes, that takes the reality of knowing that we can't walk ourselves and that we are completely dependent, not just upon God, but upon his instruction to walk and that's the posture of looking to God. So how do you face opposition? How do you, how do you handle it? It's not to, to, to look to your own strength or your own cutting ability to manipulate and, and change your surroundings. It's not to look around at that those who are with you and your possessions that you grab onto to give you comfort. It's to look to God's Word. It's to look up to God by looking down at His Word and not just posturing a life of, of prayer but also, but also walking in light of, of that. It's not just looking to God's Word, but also doing God's Word. And as we keep going, how do we face opposition? Well, it's not just posturing our, our hearts upon God and walking in light of His Word, but it's also it's, it's reaching out to God. It's pleading, the plea of the oppressed. And as we see in verses 3 and 4, the plea for mercy, the plea for favor, the plea for help. Verse 3 says this, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. That's the third time that the psalmist has, has declared have mercy upon us, as we see it in verse 2 and now twice in verse 3. The psalmist knows that they're, plea, they're pleading for mercy. They're pleading, God, don't treat me like everyone else. God, look to me, help me, see me, have mercy upon me. And this plea for mercy is a confident plea for mercy. It's a declarative statement because God is the merciful God. And He freely gives His mercy to those whom look upon it. And it says the reason, in verse 3, for which the psalmist reaches out for mercy is because they've had more than enough. More than enough of contempt and scorn. So, so if you think about what is, this, what is, what is a, a um, illustration, so to speak, of what it means to have more than enough, right? If you eat dinner and you eat too much food, and you said, I've had more than enough, that phrase, that expression means that there is no more room for food in your stomach. You had more than enough. Well, here the psalmist isn't talking about food, but it's talking about contempt. 
It's talking about being looked upon by others as worthless, as meaningless, as hopeless, as, as, as unjustly, as we, as we talked about early, is to be unjustly opposed. Contempt is the feeling of a person or a thing being beneath consideration or that they are worthless. To be looked at on with contempt by others is to be considered useless. It is to be disrespected and neglected. It is to be misunderstood. It is to be devalued. And the psalmist says, I've had enough of this. This, this, these people around me, they're looking at me. The ones who I love, I love how it's, it gives clarity on who is, who is looking at them with contempt. Those who are at ease. So the ones who are doing nothing, the ones who are at ease, their opinions of these people are that, are that they are nothing. Right? So it's saying the, they're hip, the, the hypocrites, those who are, who, are, who are doing nothing are saying that they are nothing. And, and, and the proud, the ones who boast on their own accomplishment, the ones who boast in their own glory, the, the ones who oppose God, right? It, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. Well, God opposes the proud because the proud oppose God. The proud who stand on their own two feet, on their own haughtiness, as it says often in Scripture. They, there's no room for God and dependence upon Him and, and, and need for God's mercy. And here you have a contrast between those who look to God for mercy and those who stand on their own two feet and, and, and the proud, right? It's saying that the contempt of the proud. And, 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 and for us, when we think about this, we're not given clear, a clear picture, so to speak, into what in the world is causing the contempt. What are they saying? What are they doing? But we do know that it is unjust, right? That it, that it is undeserving, I have a friend who is a biracial uh, family, and they have um, two children who are of a different skin color than he is. And um, I called him recently just to check in on him and after what's going on culturally about how um, all the protests and all the um, uh, all that's happening from the, uh, the, the in particular the most recent three um, deaths of African Americans. Uh, by uh, police officers in our country, just just wanted to say, just check in on them, and I was like, "What's this like to to raise you know black kids in in this world, and particularly in this moment?" And he he gave me two instances. First, he said that um, one was uh, he was at a park recently, and his wife and his wife's friend were sitting in their car, and their oldest son, who's black, is 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 big. I mean, he's he's. He looks like he's a 17-year-old, even though he's younger. He's a big guy, and he was kind of like sneaking up to the truck, and he was uh, he was he was going to go sneak up to go scare his mom, who was in the in the front seat, just to be playful and to be fun. And and he said that when it happened, he had to they had to tell him like, hey, you can't do this. You can't, as a black teenager, walk up to a car of white people and say and try to scare them because it looks like you're going to go rob them or mug them. In a similar instance, they were traveling, and they went to a convenience store, and his kids, they were wearing do-rags, and they walked in, he gave them some money to go and buy something at the convenience store, and they just ran into the convenience store. And he had to talk with them afterwards about, like, hey, you just can't, you can't do that. You can't run into a convenience store like that. You can't, you can't go as a, as a black male, go and do that, because people are going to think that you're going in there to rob them or whatever. And, and when he was telling me about this, as somebody who is white and has white kids, I just, my heart was full of sadness for him. 
and just the reality that to raise black kids in America is very different than to raise white kids. I've never and will never have to sit down with my son and my daughter and say, don't run into a convenience store or don't sneak up to us when, in, in, a, in a public setting into a park because, because people might think that because you're black that you're unsafe or that you may try to rob them or whatever it may be. And I tell you that illustration to tell you because to communicate and illustrate what is unfair or unjust opposition. It's when people think something about you because of your skin color, because of your faith, because of your way that you eat, the way that you breathe, the way that you do something. It's when people make particular characterizations about you based upon something that, that, that is true of you. As Christians, uh, we often are, are, are looked at unjustly by the world around us. For example, if we were to embody publicly a Christian view of marriage and what God designed for marriage, we will often be looked at by others as primitive or as bigots or as homophobic. If you want to uh, you know, be an advocate for the, for the unborn, and live out the Christian ethic of, of valuing all of life, even, even life in the womb, you will be looked at as against, uh, by particular communities, as against um, uh, women and women's rights and women's reproductive, um, and we will be misunderstood. In the same way, if you seek to be somebody who lives a, a Christian life publicly and answer the injustices of this world, you're going to be opposed. You will face opposition from other Christians. You will face opposition from other people who think differently about you. And, and what it means to not just posture ourselves and to plead to the God for mercy doesn't mean to be, to be passive pleaders, right? We're called to bear God's image. We are called to, 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 to exercise God's justice upon the world. We're called to image God's justice where we live, work, learn, and play. We are called to embody our confession that God is God, that He is sovereign over all things, that He designed the world and designed society to interact with Him and with one another in a particular way. So when we talk about a plea as the oppressed, we also have to talk about a plea for the oppressed. Because for some of us, this may be our song. We may be oppressed. We may be facing injustice. And we plea and we look to God. But for others, we may be singing this song to them. We see oppression. We see our brothers and sisters and friends going through being misjudged by people. And we sing this song to them. Look to the God who has mercy upon His children. Look to the God who does not answer your plea for mercy with scorn or contempt but for justice, for truth. And not just that, but God doesn't just call us to pray for mercy and to plea for mercy, but to be people of mercy, to be people of justice, so that wherever we go and whatever we do, we carry out the image of God in all that we do and the reality that He has created all peoples, all tongues, all nations, in His image, for His glory, and is restoring and calling all things to Himself. So God calls us to stand firm when we receive unjust opposition. 
He calls us to sing this song, to look to God, to plead to Him for mercy. And that's not a passive standing firm, but that's a standing firm. So when people talk unjustly about you and oppose you, you can say, you can say what you can say, but that's not what God says. But it also means, as God followers, to stand firm with those who receive unjust opposition, to say, this is not right. This is not how God designed the world to be. Micah 6, 8 says, Has he told you, O man, what is good, and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? To plead to God for mercy also means to, to walk in light of God's mercy. To plead to God for justice means to walk in light of, those, in light of justice. Yet Jesus died for those who unjustly opposed him. He did. And he rose again to bring about the death of injustice. He rose again to bring about new creation so the old would be gone. And that life, the life, the Garden of Eden, where man walked intimately with God and intimately with one another, injustice, that unjust opposition would be no more, and that justice would rise in Jesus. You know, in the journey of life, many of us may be running the marathon, right? And there may be people opposed to us. There may be people who want to, to, uh, to stop us in our walks with God and our journey in this world. And we've got to stand firm and keep running because God is sovereign. God is in control. But also, what kept Catherine Switzer going wasn't just her own will, but also those around her who supported her. And some of us are going to have to play that supporting role. And when people are targeting our friends, our family, whoever it may be who is facing opposition, we have a call to stand firm and to run with them and to provide in the image of God help because we have a God who helps and a God who is making all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word, thank you for this psalm and the reality that you are a God who has mercy, that you're a God who is just, that you're a God who answers opposition with truth, who answers opposition with your presence, who answers injustice with mercy. Help us to stand firm in that, but also to run hard with others who are standing firm as well. In Jesus' name, amen.